Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 221st episode of Awards Chat, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is presented by Bravo, Top Chef, Imposters, Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen, and Inside the Actors Studio for your Emmy consideration. For more info, go to bravotv.com slash Emmys. My guest today is one of the most talented comedy performers in the business, and someone who I, and a whole lot of other people, grew up with, Kenan Thompson. Thompson still has the same animated baby face that endeared him to a generation of us who watched Nickelodeon in the 90s. But, despite appearances, a lot of time has passed since all that and Kenan and Kel were on the air. Thompson is now married with a child, he just turned 40, and he is in his 15th season as a member of the cast of Saturday Night Live meaning he recently passed Daryl Hammond to become the longest-tenured performer in that show's illustrious history. You don't last that long in Studio 8H without the admiration of your boss and your peers, and Thompson certainly has both. SNL chief Lorne Michaels has said, quote, If you were designing the perfect person for SNL, most of the components would look like Keenan, close quote. Adding, quote, He's a thing that almost doesn't exist anymore. He's a variety performer. He can sing, he can move, he can do comedy, and he knows who he is in front of an audience, close quote. Former SNL performer and head writer Tina Fey once told an SNL host, quote, if you take out Kenan Thompson, the studio will explode, close quote. Over the course of my conversation with Thompson in his dressing room at 30 Rock, we discussed a wide range of topics, among them. How a funny kid from Atlanta wound up working for Nickelodeon, what the pros and cons were of child stardom, and what life was like after it ended for both him and for his longtime collaborator, Kel Mitchell, how, at something of a low point, an opportunity to audition for SNL came along, how he landed a place on the show, becoming the first cast member ever born after the show itself debuted in 1975, but why he felt out of place for his first several years on it, what the specific sketch was that turned his SNL experience around, and how he then began specializing not only in impressions of random real people, but also in non-topical sketches. In other words, in playing everyone from Steve Harvey and LeVar Ball to a singing lobster. Why he thinks he has remained a part of the show for as long as he has, how much longer he imagines he will be a part of it, and what he thinks he'll do after, plus much more. So without further ado, grab some orange soda And let's go to that conversation. Ken, thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate it. It is my pleasure, sir. So, always just begin with some of the basic background. Where were you born and raised? What did your folks do for a living? Well, I was born in Columbus, Ohio, but then my parents moved to Atlanta when I was like nine months old because they had previously lived there and had my brother there. But my mom went to nursing school at Ohio State. Go Bucks! (laughs) And yeah, they moved back right after they had me. And yeah, I was raised in Atlanta. Before doing anything professionally started, were you already clearly a funny kid or was that, how did that kind of emerge? I mean, yeah, I guess I enjoyed comedy and like my brother and I would like, you know, quote movies that we'd seen on TV back and forth all day. Like that was our entertainment, like basically just quoting coming to America over and over and over (laughs) again. So it was more of a like just playing with my brother type of thing in the beginning. It wasn't like I was like a class clown type of situation. I was usually pretty reserved, as I guess you can tell. <laughs> but um, when I did start acting, which was young, like I did a kindergarten play, like I always get like comic relief type roles. Mm-hmm. Just happy. Yeah. yeah. And and then I guess, again, also before the public got to know you, when you were still maybe just starting out in high school, is that when you kind of 
studied acting in a way for the first time, like in school? Were you doing plays and drama mm -hmm. class and all that? Yeah, basically a lot of musical theater, plays at church and stuff like that. But like the actual study of it was, yeah, more like middle school, high school. And it sounded from one thing I read like you were just as happy to be doing drama as comedy. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's all what you do with your friends. You know what I mean? Like my circle was this young theater group and we were in an ensemble. So there was no room to just be like, guys, would you maybe want to like lighten up the material a little <laughs> bit and like maybe do something just funny? Because, you know, it was a dramatic kind of theater experience. So that's what I grew up in and that's what we grew up doing like in high school you know what I mean everything in high school gets so passionate and right. emotional and like it's the end of the world if this doesn't <laughs> go right and blah 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 so it was that kind of thing but you know we were a serious ensemble and we were serious about being great performers and we used to write all the plays and write all the music and the songs and the plays and stuff like that so it was very creative like workshop development type stuff and was this the youth ensemble of Atlanta yeah because I want to ask you more about that it sounds like they've really over 25 or so years helped to develop a lot of actors who have gone on to do good things. Yeah. And the way you ended up there though, was because I, if one thing I read is correct, that you're, you know, clearly you enjoyed acting, but also was it that your parents felt you should stick with this instead of something else? I mean, when we were growing up, we used to do a lot just to kind of stay out of trouble, I guess, growing yeah. up in Atlanta, you know, we played sports and, you know, piano lessons and this and that and the other. So, Theater and acting was kind of just something that stayed with me as I continued to grow up. But when I first started with that ensemble, I wasn't even acting. I was playing the keyboards because the lady who did the musical direction used to be the musical director at our church. And she knew that we could play the piano, me and my brother. So she brought us in to play the piano for some of the shows. And then my brother started acting in the shows and I was young. I was still very little. So I would just play the keyboards. And I remember I played for a show and this one time my buddy didn't show up and he had like a solo or something. And I was like, they asked me if I would cover for him because there was no like understudies or anything. Right, it was right. just like the one guy who's left kind of playing in the back yeah. of the hood or whatever. So I was like, yeah, sure, I guess. You know what I mean? I was super <laughs> nervous. I didn't really know it, but I, everybody knew each other's material. And so I was like, I get my courage up and I step out there and he's there, you know what I mean? Huffing and puffing. He's like, I got this. So I turned <laughs> right around and went right back off stage. I didn't say a word. Wow. And that was like my first experience, like on stage with that group. But then my brother went to like college and like we fell out of touch with the group for a while. And I started going to private school and they had a theater program there. So I fell out of touch with those guys for a while. But then I started doing Nickelodeon and Mighty Ducks and stuff, and the school tried to make me choose between acting and their school <laughs> because I was missing a lot of school, I guess. Right. So I ended up going to public school, and my mom was like, well, you know, you know, Freddie Hendricks, the guy that you know taught us in that ensemble, it's his ensemble, he's a teacher at this school. I was like, well, yeah, I'll go to that school or whatever. I'm terrified, 11th grade, yeah. changing schools, yeah. you know what I mean? Private school to public school, my first public school since, like, grade school right. you know what I mean yeah it was in you know south side Atlanta so it wasn't a joke so yeah I was terrified all day because drama class was the last period of the day so you I just had like a whole <laughs> day's worth of just like being an outcast and right. blah, blah, being super nerdy because I always wore uniforms yeah so this was the first time like dressing myself and I was just like the biggest nerd <laughs> and yes you know seventh period came along and I saw my one buddy and he introduced me to this other, and then it just went on from there, and I just felt, like, right at home. But it was, like, weird because it was, like, the very end of the first right. day. It was crazy. Right. Like, I didn't see them at all throughout the day or none of that. 
it sounds like your mom was very supportive of you pursuing acting. And in fact, wasn't there something at one point where in order to, I don't know if this would have been for a youth ensemble of Atlanta or at a different point, but like she went to work at the school where you were? Yeah, that was when I was little taking classes. You know, there's a theater school called the Alliance Theater School mm -hmm. downtown where they do like the symphony orchestra and like all the big plays, like they do a Christmas carol there every yeah. year and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So. They have the theater school for kids to like learn how to audition or like learn how to do this and like, you know, little, little character work. And when I was first starting out, yes, yeah, she got a job there so I could take classes. Like she was answering phones. So, yeah, she was very supportive like the entire way. You know what I mean? Okay. But that's like going above and beyond. No, you know it's what really I mean, amazing. Opinion. So, yeah, she's amazing. Just because the question always comes up when people start as young as you do. Do you believe in hindsight, though, that the idea of getting into acting and, and going as hard as you did at such a young age, was it yours or were you kind of nudged? Would you have done it if you hadn't been kind of stared in that direction? It was mine with a lot of support. It was never something I wanted to just like quit. Like I yeah. dropped the piano after like I just didn't want to study classical music anymore. Like right. I was never learning any like Ray Charles or Stevie <laughs> Wonder, you know what I mean? Nothing funky. So right. just like whatever with this. Right. Trumpet, same thing marching band you know I just felt like a giant nerd after a while and I wasn't as good as a Marseillaise you know what I'm saying mm -hmm. I just let it go like but acting was always just like the one thing I kind of just never really wanted to like walk away from like that it was just it was entertaining to me because you know we always knew how to entertain people just by being able to like quote a whole movie in front of like that's enough to just like entertain you know grandma and grandpa who right. was on the porch right so that was fun but then when you multiply that times 10, you know, there's 100 people now or 200 people now, or now you're on stage with a group of people, you know, it was just a, it was a different type of a feeling, like different, you know what I mean? And the fact that there wasn't that much personal competition thing, the competition was to like do a good show. Right. As opposed to being like, am I six foot five and like 200 and like benching, you know what I mean? Like it's, it <laughs> right. wasn't that kind of thing. So I kind of migrated right. towards that more. How did the first professional opportunities come about what were they i know i remember there was something about where you were like you were an entertainment reporter you were a critic you were yeah that was far down the like first roads of trying it out actually but like in the beginning that's what the alliance taught us was how to like find an agent you know what i mean and like find out where the auditions for commercials and stuff whatever was coming through atlanta was and i got this original kids agent you know small whatever but they got me a you know audition for a fried chicken commercial, which was my first like job <laughs> job, and I did it with pride. And, yeah, and I was like ten years old or something, eleven, and they paid me eight hundred dollars, which was like could have been a million. Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, and I was like, this is like super duper cool. And then, you know, after that, I had auditioned for like hundreds of commercials in between, or like different you know kid shows around Atlanta or whatever. And then I stuck on you know I landed the real news for kids thing on TBS, which was like a kids news show where kids read the news to other kids yeah. at seven in the morning because, you know, <laughs> kids are up ready to hear about the news. And uh, I was a movie critic on that show. And like the first movie I critiqued was the first Mighty Ducks. And I got to meet a couple of those kids and then I got to audition for the second one. And that's how it that's how crazy. It yeah. Kind of. And the it. Mighty Ducks, too. Did that come about before anything at Nickelodeon or was that? Yeah, it that did? was like my first like Hollywood gig. Really? Yeah. It was it because you'd cross paths with these guys when when you were doing tbs no just happened to be random and i ended up being able to like send in a tape for the second one because by that time i was well into the whole audition game you yeah. know what i mean so you know i had somebody who let you know i had a new agency 
that was like, you know, had their hands in whatever was coming out of Hollywood or even whatever was going on in Atlanta, too. So I was able to send them a tape and then they asked for another tape. And I was like, who's paying for all these tapes? <laughs> but they asked me to come like audition finally for the like last one in L.A. And I, I, I landed that shit. Yeah, I remember seeing it in theaters. It was on from there. So Nickelodeon knew about you because of D2 or a separate thing? Ish. The director introduced me to Brian and Mike. Brian Robinson, Mike Tolan, I had a meeting with them. They had already cast the show. I was like the last one cast, but they were like, you got to meet this kid. We're talking about all that. Yeah. 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 So they say, you got to meet this kid. What? How did it go? I was there? cocky, man. I, I don't know. <laughs> like, for some reason, it just, like, I was so used to auditioning, so this didn't feel like an audition anymore. So I thought I had a job. I just went in there and put my feet up, like, what do you need? You need a Jamaican voice? You need an old man? I got all that for you. And I guess they just liked it. So they, they gave me that job, too. And yeah, we went to Orlando, like, a, week or two later something like that well that's what i wanted to ask so how does your life change when when that comes about you got to move do you now become homeschooled like what well, orlando wasn't that bad of a change for me being from atlanta but la like for the summer doing mighty ducks was crazy it was like mm -hmm. a whole nother world you know what i mean so i was just like i didn't know that we were stuck way in the valley i was just like yo this is beverly hills or you at one of these what do you call the apartments the probably. oakwoods you were at oakwoods a thousand percent yeah, right. yeah on women like, <laughs> right. like keeping it all the way valley yeah real. you know we were like you know going to that skating rink and burbank training and yes i was you know now having lived out there i know what was going on but <laughs> that whole thing was magic it was like you know being in a country western like storybook or something yeah. But then when we went to Orlando, yeah, I'd, super similar to Atlanta, you know, hot, humid apartments everywhere and stuff like that. So. And is it tough, yeah. though, at that age when you're probably now, what, like 15? Yeah, something like that? 14, 15, yeah. So professionally, it's as good as you would probably hope it could be going at that point. Personally, oh, yeah. though. More than I could have, you know, even dreamed. Like, this is like a TV show for real. Right. A chance to do it. Probably on a channel that you watched. A, a huge fan. Yeah. Huge Danger Mouse you know, <laughs> was Guts out yet? Yeah, I don't even know if Guts was out yet. Yeah. Double Dare, like, you know what I mean? Like, big fan. So, yeah. But on the personal side of things, you're probably away from now your friends, maybe even some of your family, mm -hmm. certainly your school. Yeah, school, friends. But by that time, I was focused for some reason just because, like, once I got the bug off of that fried chicken commercial, I was like, yo, I kind of want to see what this is about. Like, yeah. because there's no other, like, Prevision of how you would make money when you're a kid, usually, as if it's not like obvious, like a genetic type of thing that mm -hmm. you're migrating towards, whether it's academics or sports. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's just like you don't really get too many inklings of like the potential to be able to make, you know, a living. And I was like, oh, well, this could be like a cool career. Yeah. I'm obviously aware of, you know, being a movie star. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like, am I getting close? I'm like, I might as well see what's up. Yeah. Like, I felt like I was super close to it. So I was, you know, not missing home that much, you know what I'm saying? Like, I would go back when we had breaks and stuff like that, but, it, you know, it already felt like I had, like, one foot outside of that existence. Right. Well, just in case anyone was unfortunate enough to not be around at the time of all that, this was <laughs> primetime sketch comedy series. Probably I saw one thing where they were saying it was really targeting the 6- to 12-year-old demo. Uh, <laughs> yeah, at first. At first, sure. yeah. I don't know why. We, we had, like, every, like... <laughs> older person's like r&b favorite coming through there i was gonna right. say so you're suddenly like didn't like, coolio or was that was so cool yeah coolio was like in the first season i think or first or second one like super early on and we were way too young to be yeah. having like <laughs> coolio on <laughs> were you adequately prepared do you think to deal with being 
becoming famous at that young of an age. This was not a life that too many other 15-year-olds could relate to. No, I mean, I don't think, and my fame didn't come until we were out of high school and into being like in our 20s or whatever, because at the time, it was just a, you know, a small show on cable, basically, and whoever knew about it knew about it. And if they did, they were kids, and it's not like you're going to run into kids just everywhere you go unless you go to like Chuck E. Cheese, you know what I'm saying? So... (laughs) We just knew to kind of maybe stay away from Chuck E. Cheese in Orlando. Right. You know what I mean? It wasn't like we had to worry about like, oh, we, you know, in case we go to like St. Louis, right. we need security, you know what I mean? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. It wasn't like that until like it became kind of a nostalgia thing from us right. continuing to work and continuing to put things out like Good Burger and stuff like right. that. All that, obviously, again, was a sketch show at a time when there weren't and there still aren't that many sketch shows. And the gold standard's always been SNL. Mm-hmm. Were you even at that young of an age thinking or dreaming like maybe one day I can have something to do with SNL yeah we would talk that shit but we didn't think it was like really possible we would be like you know we're the SNL for kids and blah 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 but it was still kind of like an adult's magical place that nobody no Nickelodeon talent had ever you know platformed into like SNL or anything so it kind of just seemed like hopefully we'll continue to work that you know what I mean as opposed to like actually getting there right when did you first learn that there was interest in maybe spinning it off to have you and this other guy, Kel Mitchell, right? Yeah. Do, do something together. This you, you, this Atlanta kid with this Chicago kid. How well did you I know I didn't each know other? that it was. Well, I mean, we didn't meet until the first day of pretty much working on all that, and they had all met and had like a party or something in, I think in LA. Like they brought everybody to LA to like mm-hmm. meet each other and stuff, and then went to Orlando. But I didn't get to do any of that because I was like last picked, <laughs> and. It was just, you know, the first morning and we had fucking school <laughs> to do before we went to rehearsal. Right. So, like, we're just all these kids in this trailer, like, doing our individual homework. And I was just, like, super quiet. I didn't speak to anybody for the whole three hours. I just did my work. And then once we got on stage, it's like when I came alive. I started, like, hanging out with everybody and having fun and blah, blah, blah. So after that, I remember Kel was looking me up and down, like, all in school and shit. <laughs> and he was like, man, who is this nerd? Yeah, because, like, he better than everybody else. Don't want to speak. <laughs> And then when we started, like, playing on the set or whatever, he was like, oh, this is, you know, we're fun and blah, blah, blah. And, like, I like him. He makes me laugh. And I was like, yeah, man, he makes me laugh. The dude is super funny. And then Josh was super funny. And it was just, like, three boys and blah, blah, blah. Well, like, Kel and I were always, like, really close because we're super similar. You know what I mean? Like, Atlanta, Chicago, being black is not too different of an experience growing up. Like, both our moms are five foot. You know what I mean? And, like, <laughs> don't take no mess. You right. know what I'm saying? And, we just, you know, we hit it off. And, like, because our parents were, like, able to hit it off and stuff like that. And he was just really cool. And, you know, hopefully I thought I was being cool towards him and stuff. like. We, I mean, we just started hanging out everywhere, and you know, every two minutes, you know what I'm saying, everywhere we went because we were just, like, two black kids in Orlando. We didn't know anybody else, you right. know what I'm saying? And we, like, we knew Josh and we hung out with him and shit. But when it came to, like, thinking about a show idea, it was like, yeah, I think these two or whatever. So whose idea was that? Well, I mean, Brian and Dan approached us. Yeah. They, were, they just pulled it to the side, like, you guys wanted your own show? We were like, freak yeah, we want our, you know what I mean? Like, is that really a question? Like, right. are you offering that? I didn't know that was even an option. This was two years into all it that, It was right? only, yeah, after the first season. Oh, after the first season? Yeah. I feel like it was, like, at the Christmas break or something. Dep- I don't know. It depends on, like, well, that, when So the one thing I read, and this could be wrong, but they were saying once the second season of all that was complete, the actors stayed at Universal Studios in Orlando where the show was filmed to immediately begin Keenan and Kel. Yes, but we had to do a pilot first. Right, so, like, right, I right. think halfway through the season, they were like, we have an, we're going to try to work out this deal or whatever. And by the end of the season, it was like, we got a deal. 
and then we did a pilot in between. Right. And then we did the whole second season of all that, and then we were like, okay, we're picked up, and we're going to go into Keenan and Kel. Gotcha. That's how I think it went. And what was, there was something where you and Kel separately were interviewing, you both said the moment you knew you would be okay working with each other was something about Mavis and Clavis? Oh, a thousand percent. That was the first time we were actually put, like, together, just us two. Yeah. And it was, like, very comfortable shoes because we were, like, imitating old black men, basically. You know what I'm saying? Like, we were supposed to just be doing old men, but in our minds we were doing both old black dudes we've grown up seeing. You right. know what I mean? And we just, that's when we knew we were very similar. Right. You know what I'm saying? We right. just started improv back and forth on something we think, you know, we heard or something we think an old man, you know, would say or whatever. And it just happened to be, of course, from the black experience. And we were like, okay, we're very similar dudes. And... Yeah, we make each other laugh and we kind of get each other. So we start to just, you know, complimenting each other like that, like pretty immediately. I would imagine that in those days, especially, there probably weren't that many black executives at Nickelodeon. Do you remember how it felt to be, you know, a black kid at a at working for a place where, the again, I could be wrong, but I, how many other black people were around when you were making these shows? Yeah, it wasn't many, you know what I'm saying? And I don't know, I guess I had been used to that just being black you know what i'm saying you're always going to be like in a smaller number of things in most places that you go especially when you're stepping outside of the norm you know what i mean like most black kids aren't like doing tv shows and stuff right. like that you know what i'm saying so the numbers just get lower and lower naturally or whatever so we didn't really pay attention to that we were kind of just happy to have each other you know what i'm saying like somebody else to bounce off like you feel me you're like i feel you right. then we can just move on to whatever else right why do you think both shows but i guess particularly Keenan and cal why do you think they were so popular. There's still a whole generation of people who they hear orange soda or they hear Good Burger or anything like that. They, yeah. It takes them right back. So what was it about it? I mean, it's just the capture joy, I think. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they say we had, like, light in the bottle with the cast of all that and the cast of Keenan Kel and this, that, and the other and, like, us being talented at a young age. But honestly, they were able to pull genuine, like, fun moments out of us and tape that. And when you watch it back, it looks as fun as it was happening. And I think that's kind of like what stays with people after they watch it. It's like, man, they look like they were having so much time on top of the fact that, yeah, it was quirky and funny and blah, blah, blah. And Kel was the most physical person I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> so anytime he went off on a tangent, it was just like, yeah, that's that's going to be able to sustain it. Like 20 years later, I'm going to come back and be able to like watch that dude hop right. on the counter and like fall. <laughs> and that's going to make me laugh for right. sure. How did the Nickelodeon era come to an end? Why did it come to an end? Yeah, we just, you know, we had got to the end of our contract. We had, like, a, a time period that, like, ended in 2000 or something. And we, by that time, we were, like, 21-ish, 22. So were you happy to get out anyway? Yeah, I was just feeling like you can't be on Nickelodeon forever. <laughs> I mean, you can always come back as a dad or something right. like that. But, you know, it's, it's kind of weird being, like, the older college cousin or something or just staying there that long and never really trying to, like, graduate into, like, you know, real shows. Because at that age people that weren't on Nickelodeon were our friends as well. So people that had like real shows like Brandy, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. had, like all these like, you know, network things going on, Wayne's oh, Brothers, you know what I mean? Like, guys? yeah, we just know all them just yeah. from being in LA and right. like working and, you know, Nickelodeon would have all those events. Kids Choice would bring everybody out. Big Help would bring a lot of, you know, famous people out. Yeah. So we kind of knew everybody, but we were like over here in the cable world. Right and the kids world as opposed to like just being in a network world and like being whoever's you know audience or whatever right of course wanting to get like the grown-up you know version of yourself going too so right what were those years like between the end of nick 
and the beginning of SNL. I think we're talking about it was, like three years. It was like raw, you know what I'm saying, for me, because I was living in Los Angeles and I don't have any like family there. You, know what you I'm had saying? moved like, out right after Nick. Right after high school. Yeah. Yeah. Like once we turned 18, Kel and I, they moved both shows to LA. Oh, okay. So it was just a big pickup. Like my family kind of stops in Texas. <laughs> so I'm out there kind of just, you know, on my own. And then, you know, Nickelodeon earnings start running short or whatever. And, like, shit gets real. And then, like, trying to figure out, like, oh, can I get a job over here and get a job at Felicity or get a movie here? And, you know what I mean? This kind of role, blah, blah, blah. And it started to become, like, a real hustle. Yeah. And it was the first time it became, like, a real grown-up hustle because I had been, you know, job to job to job to job, you know, kind of just once I got one, that introduced me to the other, you know what I mean, without kind of stop. Till I got to the, you know, I guess, you know, ceiling of the kids' world, basically. Yeah. So breaking through to the adult world is kind of like starting from scratch, but at the same time having to pay for breaks and having to pay for, you know what I'm saying, meals and rent and blah, 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 and figuring out, like, this apartment is too small. Maybe if I get a roommate, we can get something bigger. Like, all that adult And this bullshit. is all after the Nickelodeon period mm -hmm. ended. Because, I mean, I don't know. I think people, they may assume, all right, so he had a show of his own, or, you know, with Kel on Nick for all those years. The guy must have left rich. Yeah. I mean, you would think that. But, <laughs> you know, we, we left okay. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And then, yeah. you know, no money lasts forever because even when you're making money like that, right. you're still spending. Right. You know what I'm saying? So right. Agents get their cut. Everybody gets their cut. Yeah, a thousand percent. Yeah. So, you know, and then continually so, even when you're not working, you still got to pay. So right. Right. it's like, you know, everything you get, there's a chunk missing taxes and this and any other right. so was any part of you worried at that point again before snl that in some ways the thing that you know was the reward for doing a good job all those early years the thing that you you really got known in a show where it's even named after your real name and people so associate you with that persona on on screen and everything that that could make it actually harder for you now when you're trying to branch out and do other things I mean, it wasn't something that I was prepared for, but it, it definitely happened. You know what I mean? There were a lot of roles that I couldn't get because, like, I was either, like, too young looking or they knew my face. Even today, like, there's movies that people say, like, oh, we kind of, like, want to do, like, an unfamiliar cast. Now, I get that, you know what I'm saying? Because it can take people out of it if they recognize a face that's kind of out of water mm -hmm. as opposed to, like, oh, that's just a character actor that works. And I love that guy when he just does characters and everything kind of serves the story, which is, like, the right. ultimate goal. So there was a lot of that, you know what I'm saying? And it also like made me like cherish friendships and like real relationships with people outside of like the industry because when you're not on set, there's like a whole lot of California that has nothing to do with Hollywood and there's just like real shit going on. Right. So it's like interesting to have gotten that perspective, you know, all while I'm trying to attain this like magical, you know, celebrity status of some sort from being like a movie star or a TV star. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And how were you keeping a toe in comedy specifically during those years? Did you ever try to do stand-up or... I did, but I kind of got pushed away from it in my early years because when we first moved out there, I was like very young and very green and I didn't really understand that stand-up was like a business. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I kind of just was like hanging around the comedy clubs because like that's where the black people were. <laughs> then they would like go to the clubs. So that's how I learned like the club scene, you know, just following people from the comedy clubs like to that because I was such a huge fan. I didn't know what to do with my nights. I so was who like, were the people you were hanging around with? Oh, this is the improv. Just all those dudes, whoever, you know, I wasn't really hanging with them. Right, right. following. They them. were just doing, you know, their shit. And, right. you know, I was just, you know, 
as a like audience fan or whatever, right. you know, Monday night at the Improv, Tuesday night at the Comedy Store, Wednesday wherever, Thursday, you know what I mean, like yeah. all through the weekend. So between like the Comedy Store and the Improv and like I guess the Laugh Factory or whatever, I would just like follow the crowds basically to all these different parties and shit. But yeah, I was green because I didn't really understand the concept of like the hustle of it. You know what I'm saying? So like I didn't know that people would kind of look at me as like a kid with a TV show who's just around these clubs without going on stage. It's like, like, why are you around here? You know what I'm saying? Like, you try to steal jokes or whatever. And like, I would hear like that kind of chatter going on and nobody ever like directly confronted me, but I would hear like little shit as people would like walk by, like, what the fuck you doing in here? You know what I'm saying? Like, you got a show or whatever. And I was like, oh shit. I forget that people are using this to try to attain right. something as opposed to like just entertaining these people who want to have like a strawberry daiquiri right. like myself, you know what I'm saying because I couldn't drink it right. you know what I mean so that's what made it I was like oh shit I forget that you know this is a business and it's not just like for the love or whatever right. I mean it is of course but like everybody's kind of doing it to get somewhere and I, right. that was like my wake up call to that so I kind of like laid back off a bit because it's yeah it's not what I do it's, you know I mean I was already like a working actor and I like considered myself as an actor yeah. you know what I'm saying so yeah when you look back at those years now it's a place you would not want to go back to like in not because of employment or whatever but just like it was what your mind headspace was was not great or was okay it was great yeah I mean you know it taught me a lot you know what I mean it, it definitely taught me how to be able to be myself no matter what's happening highs and lows you know what I'm saying like whether I'm balling out of control or, you know, I'm trying to figure out, like, if I'm going to pay this cable or if I'm going to let it go for this month, you know what I'm saying, or whatever. And I can still be me, you know what I'm saying? So, like, that was the thing I take away from that time the most. It's like, yeah, if it ever gets, like, rougher than rough, I can, like, go drive a bus somewhere in Hawaii or something and just, like, still be happy, you right, know what I'm saying, and right. be able to just, like, live a life as opposed to, like, always wanting right. to be the biggest or the best or, like, or just to be in L.A. or be in Beverly Hills or just be in, you know what I mean, Bel Air and shit like that. And, like, just doing that whole Chase the Dragon lifestyle, basically. Like, oh, that's a Maserati, but that's last year's Maserati. Right. <laughs> so for a guy who was, it sounds like, spending more time watching comedy than making it, how did he hear from SNL? I was auditioning. Like, you know, I was still represented well, so I was able to, like, put my you know hat in the ring whenever they were looking for people it's like oh well this guy's got talent you know what i mean he's got sketch comedy background and this that and the other so i would send them tapes of all that clips and they would say yeah well, he's great you know he still looks kind of young or whatever and it was like a couple years of that and then tracy finally left the show so there was like a big opening so they did like a big flooded you know casting call and i got to try you're out saying they were specifically they felt they needed to have a a person of color in that like if he's leaving they needed that's the way you felt they were well, it was at like it. him and i think jerry there was like two people that left so yeah i mean it was yeah it was a black casting call like you know i can't like front <laughs> on it like that's what it, we were all black basically. well is it true that when you went in for the showcase that ended up working out for you who who else was in that showcase class? Well, Kel was there at the first <laughs> one like the stand the first one and then i didn't see him at the callbacks yeah, we did one more show at the Laugh Factory, but he wasn't in that part of it. So he was in the running in the very beginning, yeah. And, and I hadn't seen him for a while. And then I saw him there that night. And that was surprising because we hadn't talked in a couple of years or whatever. So I was like, oh, shit, what's up, dog? He's like, what's up, man? And we were both like in our heads about the audition, so it wasn't a lot of back and forth. Right. And then I think he went up and I was outside like trying to figure out my shit out. And then I went in and like I was trying to like 
figure out when I was going on. So I didn't see him again anymore. And then like, I didn't see him again for like a couple of years more down the line and shit. So and when those crazy. stretches happened, that was, is it just because you guys are busy doing your thing or was there a kind of a falling out? No, I mean, it was more just, you know, kind of just two different paths of life at the time. You know what I mean? Kind of just him living out his life that he's been, you know, carved out for himself in Pasadena and me kind of, you know, had moved to New York or whatever overnight, basically, yeah. and yeah. seeing what this world is. And as you can see, like, we're in here with no windows and shit, so you kind of get trapped in a bubble a little bit. Right. Especially, like, you look up and it's 15 years later. That shit is crazy. Yeah. So the audition process... I think you said it was in LA, but who was observing? What did it entail? How did it started in New York, but the last callback thing was in LA. But yeah, and it was at this small—I shouldn't say small—the stage was small <laughs> in this comedy club. It was right. the stand-up New York, like a real comedy, like people smoking cigarettes and stuff, like right in front of the stage. And you know what I mean? I was like, I didn't think you could smoke in New York anymore, <laughs> but for some reason, <laughs> they're keeping it real in here. So it was really all about like what you're thinking and no kind of you know ability to do just physical shit or anything like that unless you wanted to tear shit up which you you know could but it wouldn't be very welcome there right but i remember when i got there i saw lauren getting out of his car and i saw him with tina and like they walked in and blah blah, blah. i was like Shh, oh man this is real like from the very beginning so right. it was real and then the callback was on the stage and i couldn't see who was in the audience but i could kind of hear there was like a table in the shadows or whatever but Apparently, like, Maya was there and, like, Seth and I think, you know, Lauren and Tina and those guys, so. And how did it go in your mind? Much better because, like, I wasn't a stand-up, you know what I mean? So I right. felt like I bombed the first time or whatever because I didn't do any kind of, like, observance comedy. I was just <laughs> doing characters. I started with a phone call between Al Sharpton and Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> like, just with, like, a sound effect of a phone ringing, like, as opposed to saying, how you guys doing tonight or anything right, like that. You right, know what I mean? So right. it played insanely quiet. <laughs> but I got the call back, and I was like, all right, cool. And that was on the stage, so it was, like, you know, straight to camera, so it was much more just direct sketch type stuff. So right. I was like, that's cool. Do you remember way better. how you found out you had gotten it? Yeah, a week went by after that first stage callback. I went back to L.A., and like a week went by, I hadn't heard anything. I was like, man, it's over. <laughs> <laughs> and then they called, and they were like, we want to do one more audition at the Laugh Factory. And I was like, shit, fucking more stand-up. <laughs> and they were like, can you do seven minutes this time? And I was like, I guess. Like, I don't really know what I'm going to say. It's the most nervous I've ever been in yeah. my life. Because it was only down to like me and like three or four other people. And they were all stand-ups, and so they were crushing it. I mean, just destroying the room because their shit is tight. To get to that point, they they were polished, you know, stand-up dudes. So they all ripped the house down. And I remember I just kept drinking water. <laughs> I was drinking water out of the bathroom sink. <laughs> like I just kept filling up this bottle because, like, no matter how much I drank, my shit, I felt like my mouth was dry. And I was like, man, I'm so nervous. And I went out there and did the same shit. But it was a little better that time because it wasn't like my first time right, right, being right. on stage or whatever. But it didn't compare to like what them dudes did. And then, you know, Finesse and I got hired. And that's how it went. But they it was only you? a night or two after that that I got the call. Right. And then they were like, so I think the audition maybe was like on a Friday or something. And they were like, so can you get to New York by like Monday? I was like, <laughs> yeah, sure, I guess. Like, I just left all my shit. I was like, yo, homie, pack my shit, please. Thank you. <laughs> so you felt that compared to the other people you were up against, you were not the standout. Why do you, have they ever told you why they went with you? Well, Maya 
put it in perspective for me. I never really asked, but I kind of were talking about it for her because we were talking about auditions. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what they saw in me. She was like, I think it was pretty obvious that they saw that you were good at, like, you know, TV work and that you'd done television before. And, like, you can get into a sketch and, like, not have a hard time or whatever. And, right. like, you can do voices and characters and shit. So that was apparent. But, like, right. as far as, like, being able to, like, tell a joke based on fucking airline miles or some shit. <laughs> <laughs> so you started in 2003. You were the youngest member of the cast then. The first cast member ever born after the show itself was born in mm -hmm. 1975. For those first two seasons, you're featured cast member. And from what I've been able to gather, you were not a particularly mm -hmm. happy camper. So why was that? What was so rough about those first couple of years? I mean, I was happy, but like I wasn't in the show much unless it was like, you know, something quick in the call to open or, you know, small, small things. I didn't have a character. So I got donutted a couple of times, you know what I'm saying? And that doesn't... That means you're nowhere in that. In that yeah, so, that means yeah. you're sitting in this room watching everything go by. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I, I was still very confident in my career at that point. So I was like, why am I even here? You know what I'm saying? Like they're obviously like migrating more towards finesse you know what i mean because he was he came in like the man he was crushing it i just didn't know what my place would be here yet so and was part of the issue. it wasn't like i was like pissed but there were you know several nights where it didn't feel great yeah yeah but you think part of the issue was just that you had not yet hooked up with writers that were here like yeah i had never had the writing responsibility before like nickelodeon they wrote everything and just we you know our job was to like take it and make it whatever you know make it funny or put a voice to it or just put mannerisms to it right. it wasn't like you know joke formulas or you know sketch formulas or anything like that so that's the kind of thing that you learn in improv school which is something i wish i would have done but i didn't think i would wind up in an improv environment i thought i'd just be like you know working and going from job to job to job as opposed to like actually finding a home somewhere which is you know very rare for an actor yeah you know what i'm saying so that's why i wasn't like ever very you know eager to just want to leave it you know what i'm right. saying because it was like a one of a kind type of experience but even when it sucks it's still like well i am here you know what i'm saying and the good news about this place is that there is going to be another show yeah you know what i'm saying that there is going to be another season and blah 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 so in those early years though when when you didn't feel it was clicking did you in any way sort of live in fear of getting fired or did you and Lauren already every have summer. a... Every you know, summer. Really? Like, they have a, you know, option every summer and it's just like for the first seven years of your experience here, like you're optioned every summer. Like you can tell that you don't have to worry, I guess, once it's been like a couple, two, three, four years of like, you know, steadily progressing on right. the show. But in the beginning, it's like, you never know. You know what I'm saying? So I felt like when I was given opportunities, I did great things. But then... There were 15 other people. The cast was like 16, 17 deep back then. And all those people are like the top people in comedy mm -hmm. doing main shit right now, trying yeah. to platform into that at the time. So right. there wasn't a lot of room for me if I wasn't writing for myself, and I didn't know how to write for myself yet. Did that really change? In the, the same year that you became a full cast member, 05, that was the same year that Brian Tucker joined as a writer. Was that mm -hmm. an important thing for you? Big time. Because it, you know, was somebody who mirrored my sense of humor, you know what I mean, and was able to like communicate my thoughts into sketch form, basically. The way you've described it, just so people know who we're talking about, you've said that the two of you write quote a lot of the black sketches, close quote, right? Can, why is that? Can you explain what well, you I mean, mean by it's that? No secret that Brian has an encyclopedic type of a knowledge of black culture. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he, he just he's he's 
overly like is he black himself i don't know he's not yeah but he's just like you know overly versed in it for whatever reasons he's just very familiar with like sanford and son and (laughs) jefferson's and like all that stuff that would be second nature for me but it's not necessarily second nature for you know a white dude from north carolina or virginia you know what i mean he's like you know as white as can be so (laughs) just his like joy of bringing out you know I mean, it's just very much of like a early Wayans tone, you know what I mean? Like just the joy of like being able to joke about certain things that are in black culture and stuff right. like that. So once we started doing that and like making each other laugh, it was like, oh, we can probably, you know, he can help me. De- I, I was saying to myself, he can definitely help me like get this craziness out of my mind and yeah. make it make sense. A lot of SNL cast members, past and present, if you read things they say, they seem to, one of the stresses is they can't really figure out what Lauren Michaels is thinking about them. Yeah. And when he did this episode, because I guess he's very, he keeps everything close to the vest. And when we did the episode with him here within the last year, I just came out and asked him, I said, like, is it a strategy? Cause this has been the suspicion of some people that if you don't give out approval easily, people work harder to try to get it. Dude, do you, do you he's think he's the greatest Jedi mind tricker ever? <laughs> I don't know if you know this shit or not, but like he has a way of being like, so you know, people would like this to be good, right? And he'll walk away and she's like, <laughs> Is it not good? How did it get past the table? What the fuck is going on? And then you'll go out there and destroy it. You know what I mean? And right. like, he has a way of like lighting that flame under people, which is great coaching. Like, whether you agree with the whole chair tossing thing and his players winning the championship or not it's just the way you engage your players so yeah he's he's great at that for somebody who doesn't know the process here of just what you've been dealing with for the last 15 years what is can you take us through what a week looks like at snl starting on sunday just what the week involves for a cast member well for your first show sunday is probably like a blur because you're constantly thinking about like what tomorrow is going to be like and then Monday doesn't start until late in the afternoon. So for people that are on the show, like they're not even paying attention to Monday, but you're like, what the fuck time do I go in there? You know what I'm saying? And like, right. when are they gonna call? And like, oh, well, like, I'm in New York and I don't like know anybody. Like, what is there to do? Like, like Broadway doesn't start till seven. So I'm like, I don't really have, I got that pastrami sandwich, but past that, I don't know what, like, you know what I mean? Like the whole day you're just waiting. Right. And then the pitch meeting is like like four or five o'clock in the afternoon or even six or whatever, but your call time is like around 4.30 or five. Mm-hmm. So you go in and then like everybody's like mingling and it's just like a college atmosphere all over again or high school or whatever. People that know each other well and like people that are ready, you know, and, and engaging to new people and people that are not, you know what I'm saying? And everybody goes, you like, you're just so green. You don't know where to stand. You don't know where to sit. You got an office, but you don't know what to do with it. You know what I mean? It's just like you're standing around waiting. And then we pitch, we all pile into Lauren's office and people sit on the floor and you don't know where to sit. So you're basically like sitting on top of people, like just like weirdly on the floor, like an, an adult, but not. <laughs> and then like everybody goes around the room and they pitch and it's like, they're all super funny and super different and creative and shit like that. And you're like, man, how the fuck do I fit in with this? But I'll throw something out there and just be silly. And that's what you do. And then everybody leaves and it's like, people can start work on Monday if you want or not. But the deadline for writing is Wednesday morning. So cause some people, leave, a lot of people leave. Like when you're brand new, you stay, you know what I'm saying? You just stay till eight or nine. Everybody's gone. You're just like 
Should I be typing something? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, my first year, I didn't write shit because I was used to, like, not writing shit. So I was just kind of just sitting there, like, <laughs> watching everybody. And then there was nobody to watch. So that's when I knew it was time to go Time home. to go home. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, Tuesday came around, the same thing. Like, I showed up mad late on Tuesday because there was no call time because, like, the only deadline I can say is Wednesday morning. Mm -hmm. So... I came in at like 6.30 or something on Tuesday and like people were well into their offices. All the doors were closed, you know what I'm saying? So everybody was like off writing and like really doing like the program basically, but I didn't know the program. So I wandered around like, you know, smoking weed and staircases <laughs> and like just wandering around the building like just super lost and like, and like watching people come up with ideas. And then I, Maya came to me with that Cosby idea and Wanda Sykes thing. Thank God for that, because otherwise I don't know if I would have had anything in the show. Because I didn't know, I didn't know the burden. You know what I'm saying? Like I didn't know that my responsibility was to like write two things or anything like that. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything about the process. I knew Adam Sandler and Chris Farley and Davis Bay, and I knew those guys. You right. know what I'm saying? And Chris Rock, and I didn't know how they got to those moments at all. So I sat around bullshitting basically. And then Wednesday is a table read, and that's what, you know, that's what I do, you know what I'm saying? Like, we get scripts, I read shit, start doing shit or whatever. So when we did the Cosby thing, it scored, you know what I mean? And I was like, dope. They picked it. I don't think I had much else in the show, so Thursday I think I might have been on call, and Friday I came in for, like, one quick thing, so the week went by really quick. Thursday is the rehearsal day, basically, the first one, but it's not a long day because... They'll only rehearse things that don't take much set-wise because they need time to get all the stuff in from, like, the Navy Brooklyn Yard or whatever. So Friday is, like, the day where they do, like, all the tough, tough sketches. Mm -hmm. So Thursday, well, like, today was only, like, three or four things or whatever. Yeah. So Friday was, like, the super long day, but still, for me, it was, like, you know, one thing or whatever. And then Saturday, my thing was an update, basically, which rehearses at, like, 7 o'clock. <laughs> So it was like another thing of like just waiting all day and kind of like wandering around doing right. nothing, you know what I mean? Like watching the show go by or whatever. But then seven o'clock does roll around, you know what I'm saying? And I do have to like do the update thing and like I'm getting my fitting and I have my tux and my ball cap and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> then it was time for dress rehearsals. I had to put the ball cap on for real and like, you know, get ready for the show. And the show came on and it was Jack Black and he was crushing and it was like, all right, cool. And then it was time for like update, you know what I mean? After the music guest, so I was like, all right, put the tux on, get ready. And I think it was Tina and Jimmy crushing it for their first opening or whatever. And it came like halfway through update, you know, I'm sitting there like as Bill Cosby, like in this tuxedo, like <laughs> just listening to all this historic shit happening in the studio that I've been like really like knowing about my whole life. You know what I'm saying? Like when I was born and growing up and you know what I mean? like. Eddie Murphy was known as a movie star, but he was also known from jumping from Saturday night. So, like, all his Saturday night shit was, like, infamous. Mm -hmm. And as I grew up, you know, I started to, like, become more of a student of it. So, yeah. sitting there, like, listening to it all happen, like, this was the first time I'm, like, in the studio and feeling the experience of, like, them say something and the response from 300 people. I was like, man, this is incredible. And I'm going to sit in the dark. And then, like, the lights came up on me and, like, they threw it to us. And Maya came down the steps doing her impressive ass Wanda Sykes. You know what I mean? She was just so polished and such a strong performer. Like, it, right. you know, didn't make her nervous at all. But I was just sitting there terrified because I was like, <laughs> I was confident in my Cosby or whatever. But, you know, people don't know who. Yeah, I didn't think anybody knew who I was or would want to engage in it or whatever. But 
that first line scored and from there on it was just like all right cool like You're if you do way, things yeah. yeah if you do things that make sense and you're confident in it you know people respond to it so the only thing you have to worry about at that point is is it funny yeah and you've said weekend updates always been your favorite part of the show is that right for you to be a part of it's one of them yeah, yeah. very high up there just because it's it's more like there's nothing better than when you have a sketch on the show that goes well when you yeah. do it that's just a beat out type of a character or whatever because right. that's the ultimate you know right. what i mean like representation of the show but as far as like straight to camera and it's just joke 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 like you don't even have to where it's like doing it at the table basically right. that that's a lot of fun was a big turning point for you I think October 17th, 2009, everybody says that after those frustrating few years, then that comes along and that was the first night you guys ever did. What's up with that? Just to remind people, this is where you're playing DeAndre Cole, <laughs> the host of a BET talk show, quote, tackling the issues of today with soul, close yeah. quote. Um, <laughs> so how did that sketch come together? Why did it work? And just how did it change things for you? It did change things for me. Like my first biggest change was Scared Straight when I wrote that yes. with, with Jost because that was like my first sketch that went well as me as the lead. You yeah. know what I mean? Like Tishon wrote me this like Randy the Bellhop sketch that I tanked because I was so nervous <laughs> and so green and it was right. just like a random kind of thing. It was funny, but like I tanked this one line so hard and I couldn't even improv out of it. And like <laughs> I heard this like audible like oh from this like one lady <laughs> in the audience. And I was like, man, is that quiet in here? And like, and of course it got cut or whatever. Right. So it was a couple years later when when Joe's came in and scared straight started happening, and that's when I was like, yeah, I love that. That was like my first like I feel like I'm representing this right. place in the proper way finally with like one of my ideas. Right. And then what's up with that? I was just like, I went to Tucker one day and I was like, I think I have an idea where I like sing, like I invite people to a talk show, but don't let them talk. You know what I mean? And I was like, I, like I just continually sing throughout it. Right. And yeah, we just started going from there. And he was like, oh, that's funny. Like just keep going back into like the theme song. And then like little beats about like, when people are trying to like do their interview part, like the band will start playing things, and that'll trigger me to like want to like get back into the theme song, shit like that, and it just started growing. And then he, of course, he just started adding like the awesome absurdities, like Lindsey Buckingham right. and like you know Jake the Snake Roberts, right. and like all those right. other characters, making it like a, a real circus. Like right. that was all Brian. Yeah. Well, that's you know it's kind of I guess a great example of what a lot of your collaborators over the years have said, which is that you're an MVP, not just. The show is always well received, and when there's when there's topical stuff like it's presidential election year, we're gonna have somebody do Trump. We're gonna have somebody like it's you know you've got to do those things. But the rest of the time, you still have right. to put on a show that and come up with stuff that's not obvious. And they say that's really where you've kind of shined, especially. And I, I saw it. I mentioned to you I was here like maybe three weeks ago mm -hmm. for the John Mulaney episode, and there was the most insane sketch i think I, I can't even when you describe it it sounds bonkers <laughs> that you're gonna do to the late to lay Miz music a sketch about ordering lobster in a diner it's so new york and you're yeah. the lobster yeah <laughs> and i'm the lobster so i mean it's not that you don't do real people or real things because you've done more impressions i think than anybody else who's ever been on the show i <laughs> i saw a stat 126 or something i'm gonna ask you about it in a second but like just the the more random stuff why is that your forte I mean, this is as much a part of the job and responsibility as anything else, right? You right. know what I'm saying? Like, even if you are a great impersonator and you come here, if you're not able to contribute 
to the rest of the show, that becomes readily apparent. You know what I'm saying? And it's like, I always wanted to be a well-rounded, I can do whatever's asked of me type of dude anyway. You know what I mean? Big time, like, team player type of dude. So I also remember, like, Lauren in our first like cast meetings being like the show worked great if you guys all look like you like each other you know what I mean and, like, <laughs> so work well with each other you know break off into groups and try different things you know blah 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 I was like I always kept that in my mind it's like try to be more of a team player and like your strengths will be obvious I guess if you do it enough you know yeah. what I'm saying so just like I don't like self-promoting myself like that. I feel like people will find out when they need to find right. out because I'm doing enough work to where it's right. just like, yeah, of course, like that's out there. Go see it or right. whatever if you want. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. But yeah, I've, I just always have been like that. And I've, I've also known like I need people, you know what I'm saying? Like if I was able to sit down and like type a sketch all by myself, I might be more of a dick. But, you know, <laughs> no, I, I know, you, you know, I'm humble enough to know that I, I do well when I'm working with others. So with the impersonations I wonder can I just list a few of the ones that stand out in my mind as hilarious just like a sentence about what you what stands out most to you when I say yeah, these sure. people alright Jimmy McMillan this was the the rent is too damn high candidate this place is such a blessing because people like that emerge in life you know what I mean <laughs> and you're able to like turn that around and show them kind of like what they look like basically right, right. and that's what he looked like to us yeah. basically this guy with this like super duper look to him and he wears these gloves because he's like worried about Agent Orange right. and like all these different little like things that we're not making up these no. are things that he's saying you know what I mean and it's just like God on down the list like to like LeVar Ball now this well, that's, like, yep, where do yep. these people like come from but it's like that doesn't matter the point is they're out there and we get a chance to like not mimic because that seems like we're just doing like nanny nanny boo boo no. you don't really exist type shit but like kind of hold the mirror up to, to life basically. Oh yeah. David Ortiz I, I just can't you do that. Yeah. yeah. I mean just glee all over that dude. Happy about food. Happy about right. life. Happy about being a stud. The Rev. Al Sharpton. Always been like you know anybody with a big voice is right. always a lot of fun right. in life and he's a just you know a character in himself. Right. Just like since day one since you know like David Allen Greer was doing them on Living Color, right. you know what I mean, with the perm and the jumpsuits and stuff like that. So the, the fact that he stayed relevant enough for me to be able to do him it. in my time was just like, yeah, I love that dude. <laughs> Got to do it. You know, he's you know one of those figures. The the doctor Neil deGrasse Tyson. God, another joyous one. Like just happy about you know the littlest things that you know excite him in life, which is you know mostly science based right. <laughs> that nobody else can relate right. to, but it tickles him. So Steve Harvey. Yeah, I know Steve from doing the Steve Harvey show, and then he's another one that just stayed out there in life, you know, and became like a relevant type of a figure that I could, like, impersonate. Right. And people would know who I'm talking about. It took a while. It didn't happen until, like, I tried it when he still had hair. Right. And they didn't really, like, respond to it like that because it was more of a black thing, I guess, at the time. And then once he did, like, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, it was, like, more of, like, a joke that people can relate to because they witnessed that moment too. Right. So everybody can, was in on the same kind of like, oh, we know who this guy is <laughs> and that moment was brilliant right. because, you know, maybe he should have prepared a little more or something. <laughs> now he got in this universe. Right. All right. So the, the way we close, if it's all right with you, we always just sort of a rapid fire. The first thing that comes to your mind of just about 10 different lines here. First of all, you got married in 2011, I believe. You had a kid in 2014. Is it hard to be 
both a great SNL contributor and a family man. How do you juggle these these two major responsibilities? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard for anybody that's working some odd hours a week where you're not home much, which is why you depend on your partner to be strong in that area. You know what I'm saying? So that's what makes a partnership strong is like supporting each other. You know what I mean? When there's like something to be supported, like this is a moment and everybody can kind of recognize that Saturday Night Live is like to be taken seriously, yeah. even if it's like my 15th year or not. You know what I'm saying? Right. Talk about last season, which was the 42nd and by every measure, the ratings, the reviews, the Emmys, I think one of the most, maybe the most successful ever. You're in the middle of it. When did you realize it was on a different level and, and why do you think it was? I mean, I knew it was on a different level from the first time he did Trump. You know what I mean? Like, he knocked it out of the park, like, real hard. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that happen a few different ways. You know what I mean? Like, you knew when Jimmy was a rock star when he was about to graduate and go be who he was. You know what I mean? You see it when, you know, Tina was doing it in certain moments when they just have, like, the studio in the palm of their hand. Like, you know, we saw it when Tina was doing Sarah Palin, basically. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, every word out of her mouth, people were like, unable to contain himself because it was just like, it's so on point right. and it's so like smart and funny and unexpected at the same time that people like, they feel privileged to be witnessing it and all that shit. So I'd seen that like happen in a bunch of different ways, I guess. So once he did it and it got that same kind of response and it was just like the air of the nation at the time too, it was just like, oh, this is explosive because we'll be tackling this like every week in a way that it's different from when Seth and, you know, The Tonight Show and, you know, The Daily Show, when they touch on it, because they touch on so many topics and they're on every day. Right. So when we hit something, it's kind of an accumulation of, like, the week's worth, and then everybody can process the whole week together in the form of Alec Baldwin being Donald Trump. Right. You know what I'm saying? And right. it's like, you know that that shit is hitting coast to coast because we travel, you know what I'm saying? So mm -hmm. wherever, you know, whatever restaurant I wind up in that's far away from here, you still hear about people doing like, you know, Alec Baldwin is crazy. Like, I don't always but you know, that guy said, you know, whatever. When did you first begin warming up the 8-H audience with song and dance before shows? I've been here three times. At first, I thought it was, I thought I'd hit the jack, the jackpot. Like, this is a, what did I do to get so lucky? Now I realize you do it every time. Yes. I started doing it with Fred because Fred and Kristen were doing it right before I was doing it. And after Fred and after Kristen stopped doing it Fred asked me to do it I guess because I had sang a bunch of different things and he was like do you want to like do something I was like yeah sure and he picked I was like I was just like I'll background whatever so it was him basically doing the song but it was that you must explain why this must be ding, ding, ding. Well, okay, I was <laughs> and now what do you do it was like me and Taryn right. and Fred was like the lead guy because he was playing the guitar <laughs> and shit and then once Fred left it was just like wide open so they offered it to me i think and i started doing it from there what's your song that you go to again right now it's give me some loving but right. i started i think doing like saturday or something like that with elton john and then i did like long train running with the doobie brothers and then and you got your back went up back dancers. to saturday you know what i mean then i got back up yeah <laughs> yeah and then it became like once we got on like give me some loving it was tight so last season you tied and this season you broke the Daryl Hammond record for longest tenured cast member. How did you process that? Can you kind of believe that? I felt like I almost felt a little guilty because like I've always been close to Daryl. You know what I mean? <laughs> like my whole time here, he's always kind of just been like my dude. Because my first year 
my first side like college gig it was me seth and daryl and me and seth traveled up to <laughs> to connecticut or whatever wherever it was together and then daryl came like mad late and we didn't know if he was going to make it or whatever but then he showed up at the last minute and then like crushed it for an hour and i was like damn i went up first and then seth went and daryl still wasn't there so it was like is he gonna make and like right when we said that he walked in and then like yeah, he's like sorry my driver got lost or whatever blah 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 <laughs> just went to the stage went right out there and fucking slayed it and i was like damn he just was and it wasn't like he was just like because it was like a basketball gym so the audience was kind of far away so it wasn't like he was like doing crowd work for 10 minutes he started with politics and stayed on it for an hour and i was like that's fucking impressive so i always had he's yoda type you know yeah. relationship with him and he reciprocated that he was always like you know checking in on me and like you cool you know blah 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 how you feeling man and he would always like drive with me like you know what i'm saying show enough like, yeah. <laughs> you love black culture too <laughs> and yeah so when i started like coming close to the record i i watched him personally put in all that work for years and all that impression work and open and show i don't think anybody said live from new york more than daryl because like there was a ginormous window where it was just like all political code opens you know what i'm saying and it was just like before obama right and after will Ferrell's george bush it was just like all about like all these like cnbc and msnbc shows being the code <laughs> open and shit and daryl was like front and center of all of those so like when i started approaching the record i was like man that's crazy he graduated from the show and you know he was gone and i was like shit Usually when you graduate, your legacy stays for a while, you know what I mean? But his was like being the longest running dude. And then like shortly after him leaving, I was coming behind that, you know what I'm saying? So right. it felt a little guilty at first, but he was always cool about it. He's like coming up on that record. Huh? I was like, <laughs> yeah. And he was high-fiving and patting me on the back and shit. So How'd you mark the occasion? What'd you do? I didn't do anything because I don't really know exactly where the record is, you know what I'm saying? Because we had this like sh weird strike year, so I don't know the exact number of shows, right, right. and oh, I feel wait, like yeah. it's a little narcissistic to like look into it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I know I don't really know where it's at, but like in conversation, it's like, oh, you got it, you know what I'm saying? So I'm like, oh, I do. All right, cool. And then I started just like representing it like that. But I don't know. I should celebrate it at some point, but I don't know. Maybe I'll save it for like when it's actually over and yeah, like, yeah. celebrate that number. Is it hard when people that you've been close with on the show, who I, you know, people like, I would imagine Tina and Jimmy and Kristen and on and on when they, when they leave, like, is that? Yeah. I, yeah. It's incredibly emotional. It's super sad because it starts on Wednesday, you know what I mean? And, and then, you know, it actually starts when you kind of know that they're leaving. But as far as like the crying of it all, it's like a few days worth, you know what I mean? As opposed to just like that last show and then we all cry at the after party and then it's over. It's like, no, it's like drawn out, you know what I mean? And then it's the same kind of, it's not like you graduate from high school and then like go into NASA, you know what I mean? We're all still doing comedy. So they right. all come back, you know what I mean? Right. So it's like re somber again because it's like now it's different, you know right. what I mean? So it's, it's always like very sad because you know that's about to happen. Like it's never gonna be the same as it was, but you know, it opens up to new experience at the same time and new people get to come in and that's a necessity, you know what I mean? But at the same time, yeah, it's like the first time when you like left all your friends at summer camp or some shit, it's like it's overly emotional for no reason. Well, Lauren has said about you, quote, I dread the day when he actually leaves. I would have him back for the next 20 years if I could figure out a way to keep him, close quote. Do you think about leaving? How will you know when the time has come? What will life look like? 
after you know those I questions. I think about leaving and I I fear it. You know what I'm saying? Like just because, like I said, like I know that it's gonna be like it's never gonna be the same. You know what I mean? It's like and it sucks because this is such a special place and you want to do your part here, but you also want to like make room for people. You know what I'm saying? That are coming behind you and blah blah blah. So. This was the first year I really started feeling like, okay, I could like kind of push out of it now. Cause like Chris came in and like, you know, he's super duper strong. You know what I'm saying? And I really look forward to like his potential on the show. And that was the first time I was like, maybe I should position out to give this dude like more room. You know what I'm saying? Like when like anybody else that came behind me, it was kind of like, I still needed to like participate. You know what I'm saying? Like I had more to do and like I had places where I, they, I felt like I was like super needed. Now it's like, you know, it's good that they got an extra, you know what I'm saying? But like Chris kind of can do all that stuff. And like now it's like, well, if that's the case, then yeah, it might be time to like move on or whatever. But no actual. Not plans. really. Yeah. Like I'm not overly excited about going back to auditioning. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that leads to the last two here. If 50 years from now they're studying SNL in some college class or whatever, and they could only show one Keenan sketch from SNL to the students. <laughs> Which would you most like it to be? Which would you least like it to be? I'd probably have to say a tie between the Black Jeopardy's, Tom Hanks's, and Chadwick's. <laughs> just because, like, Chadwick's Black Jeopardy was like, do we have enough legs to do this one more time and have it still be awesome? And it was. And I was like, that's dope. Tom Hanks was just, like, obviously dope. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. like, I think that one and, like, least worthy probably. It had to be something probably from dress rehearsal that got cut for some awful reason. <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, there's been so many ideas that hit the floor, so. Last question. A lot of people who started acting at as young an age as you, including people who worked at Nick when you were there, have had a lot of personal struggles adapting to adulthood and acting as an adult and all of that. Mm -hmm. Why do you think you were able to avoid that? What does it tell us about you? I mean, I'm... I think I've been blessed, number one, you know what I'm saying, to stay out of trouble. I've had my incidences where things with people out in the world haven't necessarily gone as smoothly as they could have just from being young in the fact that people are going to, like, come up to you and it's their one time in their mind that they get to see you and they want that experience to last, whether that's a picture or a nice engagement, regardless of what you're doing. If I'm out with my family, I'm out with my daughter, if I'm out eating or if I'm in the bathroom like your personal like time yeah. kind of like has to be put to the side if you don't want to like just get into bullshit confrontation with people you know what I'm saying and I had to like learn that while I was you know kind of like known to people you know what I'm saying mm -hmm. and like I got into like heated engagements with a lot of people I never felt great about it afterwards and then I had to like look at the situation and be like well how hard is it to just say yes and take the picture, you know what I'm saying? As opposed to like, yo, I'm trying to chill right now or like, I'm eating, can we wait for this and that? And you know what I mean? Just kind of like, there's no book for that. You know what yeah. I mean? There's no book of how to like, keep people from feeling like they're gonna be embarrassed because that's when people act out. Like when they, it's already taken a lot for them to come up and speak to you in the first place. And just knowing all that, because for me, it was never that serious. Like I see somebody famous and I'll like run up to him and be like, yo, you the man and leave it at that. Yeah. But for everybody, it's different. You know what I'm saying? Some people want, pictures some people want like a real engagement you know what i mean some people just want to relish the fact that it's happening you know what i'm saying so people treat it different and i had a hard time dealing with that in the beginning when it was starting to become like more of a thing every time i went outside somewhere so you just learn like well maybe wear a hat if you're gonna ride the subway or 
do this and that and the other, but don't put it on them for loving you. That makes no sense. You know what I'm saying? But like I said, there's no book for that. Right. And I had to learn that, but luckily it was on a one-on-one basis as opposed to like me flipping out on like a thousand teenage girls for like watching me eat lunch, like Justin Bieber situation. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not really fair for that dude because right. nobody can prepare you for that because nobody knows it's gonna happen like that for you. Nobody knows it's gonna like blow up into that situation. So when it does, it's like, you can try to tell them like, maybe be nice to the fans or whatever, but in the moment it's like, it's still a burden on the person. So it's hard for them to like calculate how to kind of put themselves out of the equation and make it an interaction with people much easier and keep it happy. You know what I'm saying? Just take the picture, shake the hand, say thank you. I was always a mannerable person, you know what I mean? But as far as like trying to get along with my day or maybe I'm having a bad day, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like none of that shit matters because as that person goes on in their life, that's all they're gonna remember, you know what I mean? And I had it happen to me as well when it goes shitty. So it's like I had to learn like not to try to reciprocate those things. Right. And it's it's tough. But as far as like getting in trouble, I'm not a knucklehead, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm well, not I don't even mean getting in trouble. Just, you've been... Forget it, if you hadn't even been a child, like child star, this is a uh, certainly for SNL, according to Lauren and everybody else, and just like the model person. So it's it's amazing when you consider that there was that extra challenge in a way that so many other people can't deal with. Yeah, especially like for me, it was never really that big of a deal when people would come up and like you know want to take my time away from like walking out of a store to like call their daughter or this that, and the other. When I started seeing it seep into like other people's lives like that or around me like my mom not being able to do anything or my wife not being able to enjoy her time or you know anybody like freaking my daughter out or anything like that i had to learn like how to not pit bull out on people and be like yo respect my space you know Mm -hmm. what i'm saying and just like figure out a way to like let people know that these things might happen but if it does i'll take care of it and you guys can go on to the car or i'll fall back and like deal with the people and shit like that and kind of make it smooth for everybody that just comes from like the original joy of doing comedy in the first place was like making people laugh, you know what I'm saying? So why would you shit on them for like running up to you and loving that, you know what I mean? Just because if somebody sees you and then another person comes in and yeah, it might turn into a thing, but like, you know, (laughs) whatever, you know what I'm saying? It's all complimentary, so. Thank you so much for doing this, I appreciate it. No, my pleasure, thanks for coming into my dungeon. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.